just kind of a preface before we begin tonight, and that is, I've always made it a habit whenever I go somewhere to hear something or any kind of a, even when I'm on vacation, I always want to, I always bring with me a, a piece of paper and a pencil so I can take notes because I figure, uh, I'll be able to use that, maybe if not at that point, what I hear, to use it later on. And I keep everything I hear in files. And so I have about four filing cabinets of notes that I've taken ever since I was a baby Christian. And uh, I would just recommend it is hard for the mind to retain everything. In fact, it is estimated that you remember one-fourth of what you hear when you pay attention to it. And that only if it's told to you twice. And so it's like a lot of it's lost. And so the best thing to do is to Write notes. I recommend that in your daily Bible study when you're just alone with the Lord in your quiet time. Write notes down as God speaks to your heart. File them, keep them, and go back to them. And you'll find that growth will be accelerated for you rather than diminished. Well, tonight we're in Acts 16. If you're unfamiliar with what we do, we go chapter by chapter, and Thursday night is more of an in-depth Bible study. And Sunday night we're covering the book of Revelation. And Sunday night's kind of like an overview Thursday night is something where we take a little slower pace and go a little more in depth. And you notice that in Acts chapter 16, there's the word we that is often used. Even in verse 11, therefore sailing from Troas, we. It indicates that Luke, the doctor, has joined the team. Luke is the author of this book, as well as the Gospel of Luke. And At one point, he wrote about what was going on in Acts, and then there's a little switch where he says we, which indicates that Luke became part of the party that traveled with Paul. He was his private physician. He cared for Paul. He was not only a man of God, but he was a doctor, and they used him as a private physician for this little group of people that was going around on missionary journeys. It seems that Dr. Luke, being a Greek, loved the sea. And it's known that Greeks in ancient times loved the sea, loved stories about the ocean. In fact, many of their myths include stories that have to deal with the sea, the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. And I say that because a lot of the wording from here on out is both told in medical terminology and seaman terminology. In fact, Acts chapter 27 is packed full of vivid detail of someone who had an intimate knowledge of what it meant to set sail and go through all of the problems that happen on an ocean, including a shipwreck. And Luke writes probably from experience. Perhaps he was a sailor, or he loved to do it, or it was a hobby, or he just loved to read about it. But he kind of got into it and gave a lot of attention to it. We see a little bit of this in the section tonight. It says, therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to the most... Samothrace. I practiced all day on that and I goofed it. And the next day came to Neapolis. Now this little island, Samothrace, is a little rocky island in the Aegean Sea. He's leaving one port, sailing to another port because it's a lot quicker than going by foot. And the little island that they happened to uh, land on was just a rocky little island with a peak that went up 5,000 feet. Rocky, tall peak. And they're Spent the night there. They had an overnighter. Stayed at the Holiday Inn there in Samothrace. And then it says the next day they came to Neapolis. They must have had a great tailwind to go 150 miles in two days by boat. 
Because in Acts chapter 20, when they take the same course back, it takes them five days to cover the same amount of ground. So they had really good sailing weather that day. And then once they hit the shore, they walked ten miles. It says from there to Philippi, which was a ten-mile walk from the shore on a special road made by the Romans called the Via Ignatia. It was a road that went all the way across the Greek peninsula from one sea to the other, the Adriatic to the Aegean Sea. You could walk across it. The roads of the ancient times are fascinating. If you go to Israel today, you can still see Roman roads that go from Jerusalem to Emmaus, well-worn, well-traveled on, where just the feet of animals and men have worn little grooves in them. And they were walking roads, and they were roads where you could pull carts and so forth. But the gospel was able to travel quickly in those days because of the incredible road system built by the Romans. The scripture says, when the fullness of time came, God sent his only son born of a virgin. God waited for the right time to send the gospel into the world, and everything was set up for it. There was a Jewish expectation for a Messiah. There was an oppression in the land of Israel. People all over the world had developed a hunger because they worshipped false gods and false religions, and they were burned out. And with the help of the Roman road system, Paul and his people were able to travel from place to place freely, which only happened about a 100 years before the time that the gospel went out. And so everything was set up. The gospel spread quickly. And it says in verse 12, And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost or principal city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. Philippi was a Roman colony in the country of Macedonia. It was where the Roman governor hung out. Just like Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor for the land of Israel, this is the headquarters of the Roman government. Just a little bit of history. This area was founded and named after a guy named Philip of Macedon. And so you have Philippi in the land of Macedonia. Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great, who conquered most of the known world by the time he was 21. In fact, when he was 29 years old, he was so successful, he sat down and wept in Babylon because there were no more lands for him to conquer. And so his father was kind of a go-getter, high achiever, probably passed it down from father to son. But Philip of Macedon was interested in this area because of the vast deposits of silver and gold that were in that area. And so a colony was established. And so he says it's the principal city of that area where the Roman government had its post. It could be also that Luke was from this area, and in one sense he's kind of bragging about his hometown. Most scholars think he's from there, and so you can see Dr. Luke. We went to Philippi, the greatest city in that area. That's where he was from. But more than that, Philippi becomes close to the heart of Paul the Apostle. You pick that up by reading the book to the Philippians. They were a special group of people that over a period of time, Paul developed an intimate relationship of love with. Let me read to you out of the book of Philippians. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart 
For whether I'm in chains or defending the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And then later on at the end of the book, he said, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia. So he used this as a base to go other places. Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. So the whole epistle to the Philippians is one of love and intimacy as he developed a relationship, more than just a professional relationship. He loved them. They were close to his heart. One of the greatest things, and we've heard testimony of it tonight, is Christian friendship and fellowship within the body of Christ where there's an intimacy that is developed, a closeness, a knitness of heart, where when it's time to part, there are tears that are shed. There are strong emotions that are felt because you've become a family. And that only happens to people who are not spectators, but people who actively participate with other people in close relationships. They're not afar, they're very close. I got a letter yesterday actually on my desk from somebody from California, and I'd like to read it to you. Dear Brother Skip, I now live in California. My wife and I were your sheep for about four years at Calvary Chapel until we moved here. The Father, speaking of God, has been laying it on my heart to write to you for about two months now. Why? Nothing exotic, really. But I know that I miss you and the family from Calvary terribly since we moved. Tears almost fall when I think of my kinship. And the joy that I have inside when I consider the close relationships formed there. For two years, we attended Calvary without a kinship until one Thursday evening or Sunday, I can't remember. You confronted the body with a strong statement concerning sitting on the bench, as it were, at Calvary. That hit me hard. Mr. No commitment, please. That I am or was. But God sent me and my family to a kinship. I went expecting a house full of warm, kind, sensitive, oh yes, perfect Christians. To my dismay, I found them to be too much like me. Moody, troubled, insensitive, judgmental, etc. I like that honesty, by the way. After only two months, I fled with my family away from them. Interesting term. So as to become holy and grown up on my own. But God dealt with me for two months, I being stubborn every inch of the way, until the leader called and reached out to me. I had not been in contact with the kinship for about two months. I told him I'd like to see him. He came to my house, and he opened his ears and his heart to me. Through his compassion and our prayer afterward, I was healed inside by the love and mercy of my Lord. That next Tuesday, we went back to our kinship I get a lump in my throat when I remember the warmth we received from our brothers and sisters there that night. We were missed, genuinely missed by them. To this day, fellowship with the kinship is what has watered our growing spirits, and I bless my Father and Jesus for giving me the family of believers that he has. Still one of your sheep, and he signs his name. It reminds me of Paul the Apostle when he was leaving the area of Ephesus and he arrives on the shore, not very far from where we're reading in this narrative. And he assembled the elders of Ephesus and he said, I know that I will not see your face ever again. 
And he shared with them how he spent time with them the last several years and poured out his heart as their leader. And they all fell on him and wept because they knew they would see his face no more. Well, that only happens when you've developed intimacy and closeness, friendship within the body of Christ. And what is needed is Christian friendship and fellowship. Webster's Dictionary defines a friend as one who is attached to another by affection or esteem. In other words, a favored companion. That's the English definition. A favored companion. Hanging out, spending time with imperfect people. Not perfect, not together, not always warm, not always sensitive. But when we can come with no expectations just to show love and to be accepted, that's where it's at. Now, there was actually an American Indian who was trying to find the right word to describe a friend, excuse me, a missionary to the American Indians. And in this particular tribe, there was no equivalent word. It was difficult to translate. And so they strung several words together. And when they wanted to call someone my friend, they would say, he is one who carries his sorrows on my back. If you were to boil life down to its essential elements, strip away the veneer, take away the creature comforts, what you have left of any importance is relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. That's really all that life is, is one big string of relationships, either meaningful or poor. I am not saying that every single person who attends this church needs to go to a Tuesday night group. That is ridiculous. Not everyone can fit that bill. There are too many things in people's life that just doesn't work. But you need to be attached to some group. doesn't have to be an official on-the-board kinship. could be a discipleship with people at work. Uh, some kind of a group where you meet, you share your heart, you're intimate, you love, you feel connected. And yet, that's the area so often that we are lacking. Well, the New Testament answer for that need is a word called koinonia. A word, unfortunately, that's been tossed around like pancakes on a griddle for too long. We say, let's have fellowship. Let's go get coffee and donuts. Well, you can have fellowship and coffee and donuts, but that is not fellowship. It's not just getting together and being entertained or being together. It's sharing life with each other. Love, acceptance, good times, bad times, like the letter that you read. Well, in this chapter and in this place at Philippi, there must have been many converts, and yet Luke chooses to highlight three of them for us in this chapter. One, a businesswoman, very successful and no doubt very wealthy, named Lydia. Secondly, a slave girl who was demon-possessed. And thirdly, a prison guard, We'll get to the other two next time. Tonight we want to look at this businesswoman named Lydia. And so we read in verse 13 that on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. And now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her house were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then she constrained us. 
They met at a riverside because, according to Jewish law, in any city, there had to be at least ten Jewish males before you could build a synagogue. And so obviously there weren't even ten Jewish males. They couldn't even have a synagogue. And so they met at the next best place at the river, which is about one mile outside of the city gate in this particular city. No church building, no order of service, no constitution, just meeting outside, hanging out at a beautiful place. But they didn't just meet there for beauty's sake. They met there because according to Jewish law, if there wasn't a synagogue, you had to have fresh running water, which the Jews called living water. The opposite of just a pool of water. It had some kind of a source It was flowing through wherever you were at. That's called living water to the Jews. And so they did that for ritual cleansing. You could get in the water. You could dress afterwards. You go through the ritualistic cleansing and the purification. And that's why these women were meeting at the river. And Paul comes along and he preaches the gospel to them. I want to share something before we move on, though, about in particular this woman. And that is... If you are in the ministry or aspiring to be in the ministry, and I bring this up because some of you are in the ministry, some of you want to go out and start a church, some of you are in the process of doing that, this tape may go out to people who will do that, but let no one who serves the Lord despise the days of small beginnings. Keep in mind, Paul did not have crowds of people around him in Philippi. He didn't turn to Luke and say, now Luke... What happened with the radio promotion here? I mean, we were supposed to have the evangelistic team months in advance and get a bigger crowd than ten women out by a riverside. Though Jesus has influenced the lives of more people in history than anyone, though millions follow him today, he started with twelve. Paul the Apostle had crowds of people. He even spoke to kings, but there was a time when he spoke to ten people. Well, not ten people. We don't know how many. Just a group of women who gathered there at the riverside. But Jesus said, wherever two or three gather in my name. He didn't say, wherever a few thousand are together, I'll be there. He said, wherever two or three gather in my name, hey, I will be there in your midst. And the scripture says not to despise the days of small beginnings. Oftentimes, Christian workers... Ministers, musicians who go out on the road get frustrated because they don't have the numbers. And so often we live in the book of numbers rather than the book of acts, so to speak. We want the numbers, but we really should have the acts, the lifestyle. When I was in Southern California and somebody said to me, hey, there's a group of us that want a Bible study. I would drive there to do it. I don't care how many. I just wanted to teach the Word. And so I had a group of home Bible studies in the area, down in Orange County, in the city of Westminster, in Garden Grove, group of about ten on Tuesday nights. Then on Friday nights, I would drive up to the high desert. It's about two and a half hour drive. It's a group of about fifteen. And just wherever I could get an audience, I wanted to teach, just to hone the gift, just to do it. When we came to Albuquerque, I really thought if the church ever got to be 200 people, it would be like the most amazing thing I could ever think of. And when we started the first night, 
There were four people. Myself, I had to be there. My wife, she had to be there. My best friend felt like he had to be there. And one other person who was invited who never showed up after that. Paul the Apostle goes out and finds Lydia, who's open to what he has to say. In verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. The Greek construction is she was constantly giving heed, paying attention. She was soaking it all in with her ears and with her heart. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. I find it wonderful that the first convert that the apostle had in Europe was a woman. I draw your attention to that. I draw your attention to the fact that in the vision of Paul, a man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. And when he got there, there weren't any. There were women who were meeting devoted to God. And the first convert was a woman. And I'm sharing that with you because, oh, what God can do through the life of a woman. So often, women are pushed aside when it comes to meaningful ministry. Oh, you know, just a few women showed up. Yeah, but what you can do with a few women. They were an integral part of Jesus' ministry. They followed Jesus around. They were in the upper room with the apostles. And the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, draws attention that they gathered, the 120, the men, the disciples, and the women. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was the women who toughed it out and watched Jesus die. Where were those brave apostles? They were hiding. The women had more guts than the men did. They were willing to stand up. Paul the Apostle, though he excludes women from pastoral ministry in the local church, he draws attention to the fact that they're used by God when he writes the epistle to the Romans and he gives greetings to those who share in the work of the ministry. He mentions several women. In the Bible, we hear of Phoebe, who is a notable woman who was a deaconess. There weren't just deacons, there were deaconesses, someone who shared in the service. They served practically with their gifts in the church. Then there was Philip in the book of Acts. And the scripture says he has four daughters who prophesied. They were prophetesses. So there weren't just deacons, there were deaconesses. There weren't just prophets, there were prophetesses. And then you look at church history. How church history has been influenced by women who have been converted, who catch the vision, get on fire, and want to work. Women of influence, queens of different empires that opened up the doors for the spread of the gospel. Women who became missionaries. In fact, we support in India oh, two or three women who minister in India just alone. They don't have husbands. They just go as missionaries into various areas, various jungle areas, and preach the gospel. And we support them. Those who translate the Bible... Writers of hymns, poets, great women of influence. William Hayden said, Woman is physically inferior to man, intellectually his equal, socially his superior, morally more susceptible, and religiously more devotional. I agree with that. 
I find that when it comes to volunteering for something, devoted to working on something in a church, it's usually women who come forward. They're the first. And they outweigh the devotion of most men. Women's ministries grow much larger than most men's ministries. Now, I know men work and there's all sorts of commitments, but women have commitments too. There is just, I find, this intense devotion, and I agree with that statement, they're morally more susceptible, religiously more devotional. Lydia was from Thyatira. Thyatira was not far from this area, but it was in a place called the Lycus Valley. It seems that it was her trade name because the ancient word for the kingdom of this area was called the Kingdom of Lydia. And she was probably called the Lydian woman. That was her trade name. She was a seller of purple, just like the famous pool player Minnesota Fats. Minnesota was not his first name. His parents didn't say, hey, Minnie, come over here. He was given that as his trade name. That's where he was from. And so it was with this woman from Lydia, from the area of the Lycus Valley. Thyatira was very famous for dyes, dyeing garments, principally for purple garments, like the shirt I'm wearing. In fact, I'm wearing it in her honor tonight, just sort of as a visual prop. She was a seller of purple, and the purple dye in Thyatira came from a sea animal, an urchin that lived in the nearby shores. It was very costly. In fact, you could only extract one drop of this dye from one urchin. From one shellfish, one drop from a vessel in the throat of the animal. Through a very meticulous kind of way to extract it from the animal, you take one drop and you get enough together and because of that it cost big bucks. It's not like me going down to TJ Maxx and buying this shirt. A purple garment in those days was very costly because of the way they extracted the dye. Well, the Romans loved purple garments. The kings wore them for royalty. Also around the Roman togas and the tunics was the purple trim and the fringe as sort of a distinguishing mark. And so being a Roman colony, uh, they wanted this. It was in high demand. And so she had a great business going there. She was a businesswoman, capable, successful, no doubt wealthy, because she had a home that could accommodate this whole missionary team. Read again with me in verse 15. If you have judged me faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay. And she constrained us. And so she obviously had a dwelling to accommodate this whole missionary team. But beyond that, it says that she worshipped God in our text. She worshipped God, yet she wasn't saved. She was religious. She had an affection for the things of God, but she didn't have a relationship with God. The term worship God is a technical term used by the apostle for someone who's called a proselyte of the gate, a Jewish proselyte, still a Gentile, but worshipped with Jews without being fully converted to Judaism. She just hung out at the prayer meeting. That's fascinating to me. A busy, successful woman, not too busy to go to a prayer meeting. Though she was really unconverted at this point, but she was out there on the Sabbath at this prayer meeting. Little did she know that that morning their guest speaker would be Paul the Apostle. And as he spoke, God would open her heart and she would come into a relationship with the Lord. And we read on. Read with me. The Lord opened her heart 
to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. The word in Greek means to open effectually. Let me give you another translation of that. The Lord touched this woman's heart and she gave attention to the message. In that verse that we just read, there are two important truths we can't miss. First of all, God takes the initiative in salvation. God opened her heart. God takes the initiative in salvation. In fact, if you really think about it, you will find that God takes the initiative in everything. In everything. We take the initiative in nothing. Oh, but my heart was burdened and I started to pray. Well, God still initiated it, probably allowing your heart to be burdened so that you would pray to Him. But He initiates that relationship and that conversation. Oh, but Lydia was the one that was searching. Yeah, but God put a hunger in her heart to do it. God initiated and then He opened her heart. It says in the book of Romans, the creation, listen carefully, the creation has been subjected to futility, emptiness, longing. Not willingly. In other words, they didn't say, hey, make me empty, God. It wasn't willingly. But by reason of Him who subjected the same in hope. In other words, God created people with a longing, a thirst, a search, so that they would look after God. Paul, when he spoke to the people in Athens, said, God put us to dwell on the face of the earth so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. God opens the heart. God initiates our salvation. You see, the Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. Well, I'm on a search for God. Well, the truth is, You feel that. But God has been searching for you because God isn't lost. You are, apart from Him. So the truth is, God put this emptiness within your heart. You were subjected to futility by reason of Him so that you would grope after Him. Though He's not far from any of us. But in that groping, in that searching, in that thirsting, you might come to know Jesus Christ. He might forgive you of your sins. But the initiative was God's all along. That's what Jesus meant when he's told his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to bring forth much fruit. There are some people, some Christians, who take the burden of another person's salvation completely upon their own shoulders. It sounds holy, it sounds pious, it sounds noble, but it's wrong. I hear things like, if I could only save him. Well, you're going to have a nervous breakdown trying. Because you can't save anyone. It's only the Lord who can do it. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they don't believe in Me. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to the heart. Well, what's our part? To share the message faithfully, to live the message. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit to open the heart and to draw a person to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he who plants anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Though you might look at a person who led you to Christ, 
who preached a message that you responded to, who gave you a track, they're nothing. They're just an instrument of the one who sows the seed. God gave the increase. Secondly, yes, God takes the initiative. But secondly, the word of God is central to a person's salvation. For I want you to notice in verse 13, we sat down and it says Paul spoke to the woman. And then it says the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Spoken by Paul. The Lord opens the door of the heart, but... The hand that he uses to reach for the doorknob is a message from the gospel. God opens the heart, but he always, always, always does it with the word of God. That's why the word of God must always be central in the teaching of a church, in evangelism, not just lots of fancy, fun stories, but the word of God. In the book of Romans, Paul said, how then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. For men to be saved, they have to believe. For them to believe, they have to hear a message. Jesus said, go to all the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say, go to all the world and entertain them to get their attention. Or have a Christian concert, though the gospel can be preached at Christian concerts, but it must be for it to be a real Christian one. He didn't say, go out and do social things to better the world, though you can preach the gospel through it, but if you go out and socially benefit people for any cause at all, but you don't tell people that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, will forgive them and rose from the dead, then don't say you are fulfilling the Great Commission. Because Jesus said, go and preach, open your mouth, share. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In the book of Acts, we read, And they, when they had testified and preached the Word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the Gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Another place in Acts. And when they were in Salamis, they preached the word of the Lord in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John as their minister. In another place in Acts, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And then in Acts chapter 15, some days after, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be in season or be instant, be constant, be ready in season and out of season. Let it be a message from the word of God. Without that, you haven't preached the gospel. Now, every now and then I'll be in a meeting where people say, well, let's just have less of the word and sing more. That's an unhealthy sign. Because only God's word can change. Nothing else can other things can lift you and tantalize you emotionally. They can make you feel good, but they can never change you except the Word of God. Over and over again, we're told that. God said, is not my Word like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? It changes. The writer of Hebrews said, the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. And I showed you one the other night, Sunday night, that little Makaira that I held out, about that big, 14, 18 inches long. And it was very sharp. It's about that big. It was an assassin sword. 
It was used in hand-to-hand combat for precise work. That's what the Word of God is like. And every time you bring a gospel message to an unsaved person, somebody you work with, somebody in your neighborhood, every time you do that, you are cutting a swath in the kingdom of darkness. And you keep cutting and you keep cutting and eventually God's Word will change. And God will use His Word to open up the heart like He did here. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he's in heaven now, but while he was alive, he lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he pastored a church and he wrote this. From time to time, we read human interest stories in the newspapers of expeditions that take needed remedies to centers of epidemic. A plane will fly penicillin to a marooned village in the Arctic. An iron lung will be flown to a remote place where an almost breathless patient awaits it. The Red Cross will press its way into a flooded area to inoculate those who are in danger of typhoid. All of these stories are, or all of these stories pale into insignificance when compared to the need of getting the gospel to people who are lost without it, whose danger is not from a momentary epidemic or physical death, but an eternal separation from God. I really wonder how many Christians believe that today. That the gospel is the most important thing to get out. Because it changes a person for all of eternity. That doesn't mean that you don't do social things, that you don't go out and do benefits. You should. But in the name of Jesus, sharing the gospel, lest you feed someone for a week and they perish into hell forever. You do it in the name of Jesus. Jesus always did it. The apostles always did it. And then in verse 15, when she and her household were baptized. Interesting. They heard the word. God opened the heart. He took the initiative. He produced the change with the message from the word. Subsequent to that, she was baptized. Not before that, not in order to be saved. After that, she was baptized. And then she asked them to stay at her house. She was Showing the fruits of repentance, in other words. It follows the opening of the heart. It was the Ethiopian eunuch who was on his way from Jerusalem back home. And Philip came up to the chariot and he said, what are you reading? He said, I'm reading this. He was reading right out of Isaiah 53. He was led as a lamb before her shears is dumb. He opened not his mouth. And the Ethiopian eunuch said, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or another? And the scripture says from that point on, he preached Jesus to them. He preached Jesus to them. Preached the gospel. He didn't say, you know, the world is socially in upheaval. and He preached Jesus to them. And the person received. And you know what happened? The Ethiopian eunuch said, there's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip didn't say, good point. Let's go for it. He said, if you believe with all of your heart, then you may. If you believe with all of your heart, then you may. If you believe, then we'll demonstrate it publicly by an act of submission and identification with Christ in water baptism, but only if and after you believe. This last Saturday, we had a baptism over at Sandia High School Pool. They are a total blast for me. I really get off on them. There were about 250, 300 people who assembled. And I know the lifeguards are just thinking, what is going on as they're there paid to watch us, lest we drown? And I'll tell you, you know, 
Well, forget it. Um, about 150 people identified with the Lord in water baptism. To hear their testimonies, it wasn't like, well, I didn't have anything to do today, so I just wanted to be get wet and be baptized. Almost every baptism was accompanied with tears, joyfulness, ecstasy at what Jesus had done. I could recount so many. One that sticks out in my mind was a young girl who came and I asked everyone, how long have you, how old are you? She said, I'm 15. 15, do you go to school? Yeah, I go to this high school. Really? We were just having talk. How long have you known Christ? Two months. Two months? Yeah, it's been great. Really? How did it happen? Oh, I go to this high school and my friends invited me to this metal church. And, you know, I thought, metal church? Metal music in a church? That's got to be a joke because she was into it. And she thought a church could never come close to this. And she came and she said, I got saved. And I've been going to church ever since for two months and I'm growing. And she was just, it was exciting. But it was a work that God had done to open up the heart. And then there was baptism. There was an identification with the Lord in baptism. I have found in this country, especially among Christians in churches like ours, that people sometimes look at baptism as not even an important thing. Granted, you're not saved by it. You're not saved by it. But we tend to look at it as excess baggage. Oh, it's just tradition. But it's a tradition passed on that we must keep. It's sacred tradition. And Paul the Apostle said, keep the traditions passed on. That's one we ought to keep. Identification with the Lord and water baptism. And some people say, well, I've been saved about a hundred years and I've just never been baptized. Really? That's okay, let's do it. But, you know, I have traveled enough outside of America to know that in other countries, baptism is the most significant thing that happens in the public forum for a Christian. It is akin, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of outsiders, it is equivalent to Christian commitment. It means a public break from the past. And that's how unsaved people in other countries view baptism. If you get baptized, you are making a statement. In fact, in India, when we go there, the Christians make a point of drawing together and forming an assembly. And with loud music, and they wear white robes. They marched through town, the town they were raised in, that they lived in, and they clap and they sing real loud so that everybody looks outside the window and sees this procession down to the river. And they see all of their friends, their ex-Hindu, ex-Muslim friends, who made a commitment. And they are making a public, loud demonstration. We're not one of you anymore. We're being baptized. We're identifying with Jesus Christ. Now, why is it important? Because Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, and baptize all nations. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. Preach, baptize them. Well, it sounds kind of foolish, uh, getting in water and getting dunked. Yes, but it's an identification of death. You go in the water and you're buried. I even had a person say, hold me down a little longer. I have a lot to bury. That person understood baptism. So I did. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. 
And then when you come out of the water and the water drips off of you, it's symbolic of coming out of the grave, resurrection, walking in newness of life. It's the identification that Paul spoke about in Romans 6. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 were baptized. In Acts 19, it says all of Asia turned. Not every single person, but it means tons of people turned and were baptized. John Chrysostom, the great golden-tongued orator in the ancient world, baptized 3,000 soldiers one day on Easter Sunday. And the way he did it is he said, turn around and baptize each other. And they did it, and it was done in just a couple moments. In 597, in Canterbury, England, Augustine baptized 10,000 men. And I saw a beautiful illustration of what happened recently when the gospel penetrated Saudi Arabia. On the L.A. Times, there was a picture of one of our soldiers being baptized in Saudi Arabia. don't know where they got the water, but they did it. And there was a picture of it. And then after baptism came service. For she said, if you've judged me faithful unto the Lord, come to my house and stay. She constrained. It means she begged forcibly, come. Oh, it's okay. Come. Oh, it's okay. Listen. If you think that God has changed my life and I'm faithful, come. The gift of hospitality shown right off. She got involved immediately. Service. In the country of India, part of the baptismal formula, a person goes in the water and in some places they have their robe on and they stand there and they put their own hand on their head and they swear an oath, so to speak. They just put it on their head and they say, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. They say that as they're being baptized. Not, great, this is good, give me more blessings. But woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Making a statement that from this time forward, I'm an ambassador for Christ to carry out His gospel message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your work is in many ways incomprehensible. You closed doors for Paul the Apostle in many areas. The Holy Spirit forbade him to go. But you opened the door in Macedonia. And I'm sure when Paul went there, he thought, great, a few women at the river. But what happened was a great going forth of the gospel with a notable businesswoman, very prominent, who was changed and saved. You changed her life radically. She demonstrated it immediately. She identified with you, no turning back. Lord, thank you for this narrative. Thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that you are still in the business of opening up hearts. Of penetrating people with the word of God. As you said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Lord, I pray that you will continue to do that through our lives. And Father, I pray that you might even do that tonight. The people who have gathered, Lord, those who may have come and they're uncertain that they have eternal life. They really can't remember if they are ever made a commitment to be born again or not. They're uncertain if their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They think that they believe in you and they're even religious in some cases, but that firm decision, that firm receiving, commitment, repentance has never been shown. I pray, Lord, that 
using the Word of God tonight, you would open up hearts even now to receive.